Well, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. He is risen. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Christ the Lord has risen today, and we are so grateful, our Father, for the privilege of coming together, singing praises to his holy name, uh, worshiping his name. He is worthy of our praise and adoration this morning. Let's continue our worship this morning. Uh, by opening up God's Word. Our text for this morning is found in John chapter 11, but to begin our time, I would like to ask you to turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. If you're visiting here this morning, there's a, a pew Bible in front of you, under the seat in front of you. We're on page 1210. 1210. If you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Daniel chapter 12, we're going to look at the first two verses here for our scripture reading. This is God's word. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will stand. There will be a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. Our Father, again, we're so thankful for the privilege of coming together this morning and being instructed by your Holy and inspired word. We pray that you would change hearts this morning through your text. We pray that you would save souls this morning through your text, all by your grace and all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, this is a very, very special morning, not just because of the breakfast burritos, but because we get to consider somewhat in depth the marvelous truths of the resurrection. Now, every week when we come together, we consider the resurrection. Every week at the Lord's Supper service, we look back to the sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Together, we look forward to his imminent return. But this morning, the Lord has graciously given us the opportunity to come together as a body and hear why the resurrection is worth celebrating. Not just once a year, not even just once a week but actually every single day, every hour, every moment. And that is because the resurrection is not merely an event that took place at some point in history, but rather the resurrection is an individual, an individual worth celebrating. The resurrection is not simply a doctrine which sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world, but rather the resurrection is a person a person worth celebrating. The resurrection is not merely a date on a calendar, past, present, or future, not something we only think about one time per year, but rather the resurrection is a promise. The resurrection is a person and a promise which our everlasting souls can find rest in, take refuge in, and even rejoice in. Our key text for this morning is found in John chapter 11, specifically the beginning of verse 25, 
which contain words spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ, who confirms this truth, that the resurrection is not simply an event, not just something that happened three days after he was crucified, not just something that will happen in all of our lives, but rather that the resurrection is a person, namely himself. As he says, if you want to turn there, John chapter 11, verse 25. As he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection. Not, I will be resurrected, though he will. Not, I have the power to resurrect you, though he does. Not even, I will resurrect you, though he's going to, but I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. And if this is true, if he is in fact the resurrection, the Resurrection, which Daniel just said is inevitable in the lives of every human being who has ever or will ever live, then we had better know exactly what Jesus meant when he said that he is the resurrection, right? We have a lot of visitors here today. I'm so glad. I'm so thankful you're here. We have many familiar faces here today, faces I see every week. I'm so grateful for the privilege of another Lord's Day of worshiping the king alongside you, but regardless of whether this is your first time here or your tenth time here or your hundredth time here, we all have something in common. These four words of Christ, I am the resurrection, are applicable to all of our lives. This is a truth that will impact all of us in one way or another. These words are not just for Martha. Not just for Mary or Lazarus, as you'll see, not just for the disciples, not just for John's readers, not just for those in the early church, but these words are for everyone, everyone in here. In fact, they're applicable to all human beings born of Adam's seed. Therefore, I cannot stress this enough, you must pay close attention to Christ's words this morning. You must, as much as you're able, limit the distractions from your minds. From your hearts, focus on these words, these words of monumental significance, these words which will have eternal implications for your everlasting soul. Last week, we talked about the universal impact of Adam's fall in the garden. I said it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what color skin you have, how much money you have, how tall you are. I think I even said it doesn't matter if you're male or single, tall or dumb proving that I'm both finite and fallible, very fallible. But the point remains, it doesn't matter who you are. Because you were born of Adam, and all of you were, because you were born of Adam's seed, you were born into this world under a curse. Like it or not, we inherited the sinful nature which came through Adam's disobedience, and the wages of sin is what? Death. Meaning, We were all born into this world under a death sentence. We were born condemned already, judged already, as Jesus said. Not only did we fall when Adam fell, not only did we 
inherit the spiritual death or spiritual separation from our representative in the garden, but we also inherited the just penalty for even our own sin, for our own inevitable falling short of God's perfect expectations for our lives. And because of this, I'm going to start this morning by again reminding you of another universal truth, namely that you are going to die. And you're going to die soon. Unless the Lord returns to rapture his church, your inevitable physical death is looming large, even as we speak. You cannot escape your physical death. You cannot deny your physical death. You cannot postpone your physical death. For a day has been appointed, regardless of by whatever means you go, whether you freeze to death or burn to death, you go hungry, get sick, get in a car accident, get murdered, even commit suicide. A a day, a time, a moment has been appointed for you to die. And it could be any second now. Or you could live another 90 years. But but even 90 more years is a vapor. It's a mist. Your end is near, and it's out of your control. It's out of your control. Great or small, you will die. And you will die soon. You have a lot of money, millions or billions of dollars, or you live in check to check, hand to mouth. Either way, you will die. You will die soon. You have a nice home, you live in a gated community, or you're in the slums, the projects. Either way, you will die. You will die soon. You have a solid education, you got multiple degrees, a lot of letters after your name, or did you drop out of high school? Did you even go to school at all? Either way, you will die. And you will die soon. You have a lot of influence, uh, whether in government, the private sector, or some other platform. You have a large following, either on the internet or in real life. Uh, You have a lot of clout, authority, prominence in society, or are you a nobody in this world's eyes? Either way, you will die, and you will die soon. You have a good marriage? Got great kids? Nice family? Everyone getting along? Or are you struggling? You're flailing about, just trying to hold it all together. Either way, you will die. And you will die soon. Are you healthy? Are you fit? Did you grace the cover of Men's Fitness or Women's Fitness magazine? Or like the rest of us, you got some work to do in that area. Are you sick or well? Is your body being ravaged by disease as you sit there this morning? Or do you have a clean bill of health, either way, you will die. You will die soon. Do you have a religious background? Did you grow up in a good Christian home? Did you grow up going to church, hearing the gospel of God, hearing the word of God? Or is this the first time you've ever stepped foot in a church in years or maybe ever in your life? Either way, you will die. And you will die soon. Are you a believer? Are you 
born again? Are you regenerate? Has the price of your sins been paid for in full by the precious blood of the sinless Son of God? Do you have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of you who not only regenerated you, but has also sealed you for eternal life with your Creator in glory forever? Or do you have, not have any idea what I just said? Either way, you will die. And you will die soon. It doesn't matter who you are. Death is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you've made, where you've come from, where you've been, who you know, or who knows you, or frankly, even what you believe. If the Lord should tarry, you will perish from this earth. You will lose your earthly life. Your body will return to the dust from whence it came. It's a reality as real as the next breath you take, which, if we're being honest, could be at any moment. It could be your last breath. The question is, what will happen to you then? Will you be among those who will awake to everlasting life, or will you be among those who awake to reproach and everlasting contempt? That's the question. Do you have an answer? Do you even know? Will you be among those in the tombs whom Jesus said will hear his voice and come forth to a resurrection of life? Or will you be among those who will hear his voice and be raised to a resurrection of judgment? Do you know? Are you certain? We're all going to die. And we're all going to be raised from the dead. We will all experience resurrection. The question is, which one? So I suggest you pay close attention to the words of our Lord today so that you can leave this place absolutely sure. Okay? So let's dive in here, John chapter 11. Turn there if you haven't yet. We have to have some context for this incredible claim of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life? A claim so monumental, words with such deep eternal implications, necessitates our looking at them in context. You don't just walk up to someone out of the blue and say, I am the resurrection and the life. This is not a common icebreaker here. You can't can't just say that to somebody, uh, unless you're nuts, of course. Uh, Someone, something had to spur on this declaration of our Lord here. What was it? Well, let's begin reading this account for context here. Let's read all the way from verse 1 to verse 25. We got nothing better to do this morning, right? That's right. There is nothing better to do. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 25, with very brief comment as we go along. Verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick. Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, Bethany is two miles east of Jerusalem. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, we've heard of them before. Verse 2 says, It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with perfume, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And actually, this name Lazarus, or Eleazar, means God helps. Interesting. Well, Here in verse 2, John says, Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Let me ask you something real quick. Uh, Do the people who God loves get sick? 
Do we get ailments? Do we get horrific diagnoses? Do we get cancer? Do we get MS, ALS, SARS, and every other S that everyone else in the world gets? Do we have great sorrows? Do we have troubles? Do we have anxieties? Do we have depression? Do we grieve the loss of loved ones? Do we get hurt? Do we get killed? Do we get very sick unto death? Do we? Well, I don't understand. You go to the charismatic church down the street, they'll say to get sick is not in the Lord's will for the Christian. Or that we just don't have enough faith to overcome it. Or that we must have done something really wrong to deserve God's punishment. But here it says, Lazarus, Eleazar, the one whom God helps, the one whom Jesus loves, is sick. So sick, in fact, a messenger was sent with the news. And it's not good news. Verse 4. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness does not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Oh, okay, okay. So you're saying there's divine purpose for sickness and suffering. I wonder if the charismatics have ever read this account. But maybe that love thing in verse 3 was just a one-off comment. Who knows? Maybe this was just a nice way of saying that Jesus cared about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus as he would any other human, not necessarily a believer, This word for love in verse 3 is phileo, friendship, affection, brotherly love. It's not the agape love or the sacrificial love, the self-giving love that God had for his people. This is not the agape love that prompted the sacrifice of his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for our sins. Okay, so maybe they get a pass. But wait, verse 5. John says, now, Jesus loved agapao, Martha, and her sister, and Lazarus. Context is king, my brothers and sisters. These were God's chosen people. These were Old Testament saints at this point. Saints who were sick, suffering, grieving, mourning, dying, just like all the rest of us even today, right? Verse 6. So, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he, sta- he then stayed two days in the place where he was. Then after he said this uh, to the disciples, excuse me, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. That's where Bethany was, Judea, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were. The disciples said to him, uh, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. You're going there again? And that's right, they did try to stone him just a few days before. The Jews in Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us openly. And Jesus answered, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So the disciples said, are you kidding me? You want to go back there so soon? And Jesus answered in verse 9, 
Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. That's interesting there. He doesn't say that men stumble in the dark because the light is not shining around them or men stumble because the light is not shining before them or they stumble because the light isn't shining in front of them, illuminating their path. But he says they stumble because the light is not in them. Do you see that there in your Bibles? In them. Hmm. Verse 11. He said these things. And after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be saved from his sickness. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he was speaking of actual sleep. Verse 14, so then Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. That's a remarkable statement in itself. Jesus tells the disciples, Lazarus, the one whom he loved with an agape, self-sacrificing, steadfast love, is dead. And he was glad. Tell us how you really feel. Actually, he says... I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Verse 16, therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, meaning twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us us also go that we may die with him. You know, we give Thomas a lot of grief in the church, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. I think that's an unfair title. (laughs) Here we could call him Noble Thomas, Brave Thomas, amen, Courageous Thomas even, as he says, all right, let's go then, let's do it, let's go to Judea, I'm ready. I may call him Alpha Thomas from now on, actually. That's what we call Thomas in our elders meeting. Well, they went, (laughs) I'm just kidding, (laughs) we don't call him that. Well, i got to stick to this here. Well, they went. Okay, verse 17 says, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Some Jews in those days taught that three days was the time period when a body could be resurrected. That That the soul of a person had three days in which it could decide to return to its earthly tent. They said past the third day, rotten decay would start to creep in and the soul would reject the body. Say, I don't want to be in that body anymore. Now, I think that's ridiculous, okay? But perhaps for someone who would raise this objection here, John says, four days. Four days, Lazarus was dead and in this tomb. Uh, His own sister will confirm it. Roll away the stone, she says. He's been in there four days. There's going to be a smell. This is a smell of rotting flesh. Verse 18, uh, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about 15 stadia away, again, about two miles. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. 
You know, here's another lady who gets a real bad rep. Martha, Martha, right? We know her from, her from Luke chapter 10. Now, as they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her home, and she had a sister called Mary who was also seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. She came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the preparations alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Oh, Martha, Martha, the dreaded double naming. Luke's account has led many a believer over the years to use her as an example of how not to be. And they use her words here in John 11 as well. They'd say, oh, typical Martha, there she is, rebuking the Lord. She's a real know-it-all. She's such a bossy woman, so headstrong, maybe even a bit arrogant. And here she goes again. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. What a nag this woman is. But I disagree. In fact, amongst all the believers in glory... I may be most excited about the Lord's introducing me to Martha. I know, Old Testament saints, Abraham, Moses, David, that'll be a real treat. Paul, of course. Peter, for sure. Barnabas, Apollos, John himself, can't wait. Spurgeon, Calvin, Luther, Wycliffe, Tyndale, yes, 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 yes. But after Christ, I may just make a beeline to Martha. In fact, I think Martha has done way more, for believer, uh, way more for believers than folks realize. Not only is she very eager, very hospitable, not only does she have a, a servant's heart, but just like Peter, she asks all the questions that if we were alone with the Lord, we would ask him. And just like uh, Peter in Mark's gospel, Martha will actually uh, go on to be the first person to confess Jesus as, as the Christ in this gospel. Verse 27 Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. She's got better theology than most folks in the church today. And she had better Christology than most followers of Jesus back then, including the disciples who had not yet made this profession. They were still calling him rabbi. She says, no, no, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. Now, it's worth noting that the women of the gospel accounts are continually given special mention and prominence. Martha's faith, Mary's faith, the other Mary's faith, the woman who touched the hem of Christ's garment, the widow at the temple, the Syrophoenician woman, and now Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha, who also had a remarkable eschatology. She was no dummy. She said this, Lord... If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, you could have healed him. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. What trust? She trusts in the sovereign providence of the Lord. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's good eschatology. That's great eschatology. She had read Daniel chapter 12. 
talking about the resurrection or awakening of the Old Testament saints when the promised Messiah returned at the end of the age. As soon as he comes back, boom. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. That's the last day. You know, sleep is a common Old Testament metaphor for death, by the way. We, we read it all the time. So-and-so slept with his fathers. That means that he died. He perished from this earth physically. From the outward appearance, it looks like he's sleeping. He's sleeping and waiting for the resurrection to take place. When, as prophesied, the Christ returns and the dead are raised to life, reunited with their bodies, bodies which will live forever. Now, some have used this as an opportunity to teach soul sleep. Have you ever heard of that, soul sleep? Mostly Jehovah's Witnesses say that. They say, uh, when we die, our mind, our body, our soul, they go to sleep. They go to an unconscious rest, only to wake up when that heavenly alarm clock goes off. But like most things they believe and teach, soul sleep is not a biblical teaching. Jesus tells of another Lazarus in chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, and a rich man. Listen to what happens the moment they die. Now, it happened that the poor man died, was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. That doesn't sound like nap time to me. But there we see it again. Whether rich or poor, prominent or a nobody, believer or unbeliever, black, brown, white, married or single, tall or short, (laughs) smart or dumb, you will die. And you will die soon. You will die And your body will, quote, unquote, sleep, but your soul will live consciously in one of two places, either immediately in the presence of its Lord in heaven, spiritual life, or still spiritually separated from its creator in hell, spiritual death both awaiting the resurrection of the body to either eternal glory or eternal torment, as Martha says, on the last day. That's what she's talking about here. The awakening of her brother Lazarus at the end of the age, but nowhere does the Bible teach soul sleep. In fact, the second you perish from this earth, the second you die, you'll be more alive and conscious of your spiritual condition than you ever have been before. Nothing will be clouded. You'll know exactly where you are. You'll know exactly why you're there. Jesus is clear here. Martha just doesn't grasp it yet. No, 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 no. Your brother will rise again, Martha, like in a couple minutes here. Like, I'm going to reunite his soul with his body. He will walk out of that tomb alive. Martha. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, your brother will rise again. Martha, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And now, our key text for this morning, Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is not merely an event. The resurrection is a person, namely, the great I am. I am. Multiple times throughout John, Jesus uses the same phraseology Yahweh God used to communicate to Moses through the burning bush when he said, I am who I am. I am Yahweh, the powerful yet personal God of all creation. Jesus used this terminology several times, clearly indicating who he is. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. He'll say, I am the way to the Father. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. This is an exclusive gospel here. I am the way. I am the truth. Here he says, I am the resurrection. What exactly, what exactly does this mean? Well, Tom Constable, who was very helpful in this section, put it this way. I can't put it any better than this. Uh, quote, Jesus proceeded to make another of his I am claims. He meant that he would personally affect resurrection and provide eternal life. He wanted Martha to think about the person who would do the resurrecting rather than, rather than the event itself. That's right. Jesus' own power raises people to life just as Jesus' own person satisfies people spiritually like bread satisfies physically. He himself is, therefore, the essential element in resurrection. Without him, there is is no resurrection or life. Let me say that again. He himself is, therefore, the essential element in resurrection, Without him, there is no resurrection or life. That's good stuff. And again, it teaches the exclusivity of the gospel. Nobody will come to the Father apart from coming through the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want anybody to leave here thinking that that's even a possibility, because it's not. Don't say nobody told you. You will not go to heaven. You will not be in glory unless you come through Jesus Christ. Billions of people living in this world right now are not coming through Jesus Christ. Maybe they're coming through Muhammad. Maybe they're coming through Krishna or Buddha or whatever. But they ain't going to heaven. They're going to be raised to everlasting contempt. That's just how it is. Jesus is the resurrection. Why? Because Jesus is the one, the only one, who has conquered death, who overcame death. Jesus is the one, the only one, who had the authority to both take his life and raise it up again. He's the one, as Paul said, who was the first to be raised. We will all follow at an appointed time, some to everlasting life and glory, some to everlasting death and torment and hell and the lake of fire. But he was raised first. He was first. Now, some people will say, many people will say, ah, that's baloney. This is baloney. What are you talking about? This life is all there is. It just goes black when you die. Or we come back as something else when we die. We come back as a cat or a houseplant or a mushroom or something. I don't know whoever would want to come back as a mushroom. I don't know if 
know if anybody says that. Scratch that. But they say, we'll come back as a cat. My grandma knows somebody. We knew somebody who said she was going to come back as a cat. They'd say, right? <laughs> They'd say, this is all there is. When you die, you just become cosmic stardust. Many in the first century would have said, there's no resurrection from the dead. Martha, are you nuts? In fact, the Sadducees would say, Daniel, Job, Isaiah, not inspired, false prophets. Yeah, the body will go into the ground, but the spirit will not return to its maker, Job, Solomon. You know, some in the early church, even professing believers, were even saying, Paul, Peter, you guys are crazy. That is impossible. We can't go around saying that Jesus rose from the dead after he was crucified, or people will think we're crazy too. Well, you know what? Paul didn't mince words with these folks. He said this, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do do some of you, how how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, this is even more damning, we are the even found to be false witnesses of God because we bore witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. What are you doing here? Why are you a part of this church in Corinth if you're still in your sins? Go out and have a good time. Live for yourself like everybody else. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Then he says it straight up. Listen, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And that's right. We should be out there with them. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For, like we talked about earlier, as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ, we will be made, all will be made alive, but each in his own order. We're all going to be resurrected is what that means. All of us. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Christ first. The resurrection of Christ first. Luke 24. Now on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb. Who came to the tomb? The women that had come with him from Galilee. Now on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, And when the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he 
he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third days rise again. Don't you remember that? Well, here it is. Christ first, then us. As he overcame death, the only one who has overcome death, the only one who then has power over death, authority over death, not only for himself, but for all who would come after him, giving Christ and Christ alone the ability to make the claim, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. He also says, and the life. Again, Constable, what Jesus is saying here is that he is both the overcomer of death and that he is also the author and sustainer of life. Well, we know that. We've been in Genesis chapter 1 and John 1, which said all things came into being through him. How many things? All things. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light of men? How does this statement back in verse 10 look now? Man stumbles because the light is not in him. The light of life. Who is? Christ. Who said that over here? My man. Let the little children come to me, Jesus said. That's what I'm talking about. If the light of life is not in men, what does that mean? Who's not in them? Christ. Who is God? That's right. Christ is not in them. Therefore, they are still in their sin, and the wrath of God remains on them. And when they perish from this earth, they will be sent to hell, awaiting the resurrection to everlasting contempt. What about you? Do you have the light? Do you have the light who is Christ shining in your heart? Have you come to the Father through the life? Has your everlasting soul been awakened through the resurrection? Or, like the rich man, will you be among those who not only die a physical death, but also maintain your spiritual death and your separation from God throughout all of eternity? Which one are you? You say, well, well, how can I be sure that I will awaken to everlasting life and not hell? Well, he tells you in verse 25, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. Okay, that's a heavy statement in itself. What does this mean? Lazarus just died. Surely he was a believer. And Mary died, and Martha died, and Paul and Mark and all the New Testament saints died. I was just at a memorial last week. This very faithful woman of God died. All Christians die, right? Physically. So this can't mean physical life. No, no, this is a reference to spiritual life, eternal life. He will live spiritually even if he dies physically. Lazarus, body, dead. Soul alive. In a few verses, Jesus will 
bring his conscious soul back from the dead to reunite with his body where he would be both spiritually and physically alive, but he would soon die again, right? And his conscious alive soul would go again immediately into glory. I always think about sweet Lazarus. He's dead, his body's sleeping, his soul is in glory with Abraham. Four days later, he's ripped back into this cursed world. What a bummer. Do it all over again. He's going to die again. But even now, as we speak, as we all sit here this morning, the soul of Lazarus lives in heaven, awaiting the day when Christ returns his body, uh, his body and his body will be raised from the dead when Christ returns. It will, it will be reunited with his spirit in glory. And a glorious body it will be. It will be like Christ's body, fit for eternity in heaven, the new heaven. Jesus reiterates this in verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Now, there are eschatological specifics we don't have time to get into this morning. What about the rapture? What about the resurrection bodies? What is there a reference to those physical bodies alone, or is this all spiritual? You know, James, James Boyce does a great job of explaining all the different views. I'm going to send that out to all of you tonight who are in the directory. To me, what Christ is saying here is crystal clear. Those who have been granted life, spiritual life, a true believer in any age, though they will die physically, will never die spiritually, ever. This is as clear a statement on the security of a believer as you're ever going to find here. You will never die spiritually, ever. Rather, you will have, in fact, you already have life, life, eternal life. You've already been raised, spiritually speaking, because you've been made alive together with Christ. You have Christ in you. Uh, You're already counted among the redeemed spiritually. You just got to trudge through this life in this place a little bit longer. But you're already there. Your eternal life has been secured. How, How can we be sure of this? How can we then rest in that truth? Well, because the very resurrection and the life himself guaranteed it. My sheep hear my voice. Do you not hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning through his word? Well, that's because you're not of his sheep. I'll just be frank with you. Because he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give them eternal life. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Praise the Lord. That's why we celebrate. That's why we remember. That's why we rejoice. And that's how we can find true rest in the resurrection. Amen? Amen. Well, like any good preacher, uh, the best of preachers then makes this truth very personal for the sweet little lamb, Martha, Martha, whom he loved. He said, uh, do you believe this? Martha, do you believe this? You know, Martha had a good theology. She had a great eschatology, but being a Christian is so much more than just learning sound doctrine. That's a part of it. Don't get me wrong. That's a big part of it. 
But adherence to a correct doctrinal system or, or a confession is useless if it's not founded upon the bedrock of the person of Christ. It reminds me of Spurgeon, who, when he was preaching the first sermon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in March of 1861, said this, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist, although I claim to be rather a Calvinist according to Calvin than after the modern debased fashion. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. Then, pointing to the baptistry, he said, You have there substantial evidence that I am not ashamed of that ordinance of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if I am asked to say what is my creed, I think I must reply, It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life, end quote. And that's right. Our application for this morning, the resurrection is not merely an event or an occurrence or a holiday. It's not just some doctrine that we are to understand or lesson to be learned or a confession to be championed. The resurrection is an individual. The resurrection is a person. And here in verse 36, that person, the Lord Jesus Christ, takes Martha Martha from recitation to realization, from the creed to the Christ, from mere head knowledge to heart knowledge, from a mere profession to an eternal possession, from the mere regurgitation of facts to the guarantee of her resurrection to eternal life, from the very resurrection himself. As if to say, I who am speaking with you am he. He says, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe? And through what can I, I can only imagine was a stream of tears, she said to him, Yes, Lord. Yes. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. And I'm going to ask you the same question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? The bread of life? The light of the world? The good shepherd? Do you believe that he is the word of God? The word who is with God? The word who is God? Do you believe that he is the way? The truth? Do you believe that he is the resurrection? The life? Do you believe that he is Lord? Have you bent your knee to him as Lord? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Paul says this is an absolute certainty for the saved man or woman of God, that if you you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. Is that true of you? Where will you go when you inevitably die, which could be at any moment? Is this true of you? 
you can be sure today. For the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. Or as Daniel said, to reproach and everlasting contempt. For there is no distinction, no distinction. That's what we talked about at the beginning. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you never have, I invite you to call upon the name of the Lord this morning and be saved. Saved from his righteous wrath, saved from an eternity in hell apart from him, in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and saved to eternal glory with him in heaven forever and ever. Nobody can snatch you out of his hand. I invite you by his grace to come to him this morning. I I implore you to hear his voice through his word. I invite you this morning to believe this claim, to believe in the gospel, which said that he came into this world, which he spoke into existence. He came into this world and he he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. He came into this world to give his life a ransom for many, to be hung on a Roman cross, to be placed in an empty tomb, only to come out of that tomb three days later, a risen, living, triumphant, victorious Savior. The Savior for sinners. Savior of all who would but believe in his gospel and call upon his name alone for salvation. Are you one of those? Are you one of those? Are you resting in the resurrection this morning, my friend? I hope that you are. If not, I bid you come to him today. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory great things he has done. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's have Noel and the others come up and Close us in musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity just to come together again and be instructed by your word, to hear your word, and to be transformed by your word. I pray that if there's anybody in, in here today that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you would do a sovereign work of regenerating their heart Cause them to be alive spiritually. Reverse the curse in their heart. Spare them. Save them. For you are worthy of their praise as well as ours. But it's a delight to give it to you today. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the risen Christ. We thank you that he lives even now. We sing praises to your holy name because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.